Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. For a couple of decades, the For Your Benefit show has aired here on Federal News Network. It was regular listening for anyone planning to retire someday. Host Bob Lines broadcast his final show this past Monday. Because he was such a fixture for our listeners and for those of us at the station, I didn't want Mr. Lines to get away without a final interview with me. Bob, great to have you in my studio. Great to be here in your studio. Now, just review for us. How many years have you been doing for your benefit? How many years? I'd have to say close to 30. But on Federal News Network, since we started about 24 years ago. Right. Wow. Where did you do it before that? I would go on a radio station. And I have a friend, would you come on and talk about taxes? And I said, you want me to talk about taxes? Uh, How long do you expect this show to last? And I said, I'm good for about five or ten minutes, uh, but I I don't think I could do an hour. And that's how I got into it. Actually, I learned how to stand on my feet and talk in front of a group of more than one. And it was my boss in the 70s, hot-tempered Irishman. But if you got beyond the tough part, he was a piece of cake. Very nice, extremely smart, and um, he took me out. It was a franchise firm, and we had franchises all around the country to do consulting work. So he says, you know, we're going to do the annual tour. And I said, does that mean I have to talk, or do I just carry the phone? He said, no, you're going to talk. I didn't sleep for a month. I I looked at everything I could. The first time we went out, I forget what state it was, and he looked up at me and said, listen, you're doing pretty good. I'll see you at lunch. Left you there in front of a crowd. In front of a crowd. On your own. Yeah. And I had lunch, and I said, do I have to do this again after? He said, you should be a pro at this now. Yeah. <laughs> he knew you better than you knew yourself in yes, some way. Yes, he did. And um, Those are the best Very, bosses. very thankful. And we should tell people that have been listening to the show here for 24 years at 10 o'clock on Mondays, who is Bob Lines? What's your actual job and profession? Well... I didn't graduate at the top of my class in college, so I took a job, and it it paid decent, but it wasn't particularly pretty. It was like working in a closet, but I learned things that I would have never learned otherwise, and we had some really sharp people, and I would ask, and then my boss would come out, and he said, look at this, and they'd come back and give me a brief on this. All he was doing is trying to find a way to beat me up verbally, and he says, now, next time you come in here, do better homework. And, um, again, I'll go to the grave thanking him. And he didn't let many people in behind the fence. Somehow I got there. I don't know what it was. It certainly wasn't talking about taxes. And uh, that's that's what it did. And then I said, I think I can do this. And I went to work for my friend Don Gold. What exactly are you? You've described yourself as an accountant who doesn't like accounting. But what I realized when I, when I got out of school is – I could do the accounting, but to me it was boring. And so I kind of looked at doing tax work. Taxes, generally speaking, there's no balance sheet. You don't have to do this or that. You should do things if they're aggressive. You know, you can be aggressive, but you can't be overly aggressive because once that hits IRS's uh, computers, they're going to come after you. So I can give them ideas and and the like, and that's what it did. And then I uh, went to work for my friend Don Gold, and we grew a large firm. More so from taxes than it was for the accounting, and Don liked accounting more than I did, and uh, that's where I uh, am. And how did you get into the idea, what interested you in helping 
federal civil servants with their not just taxes, but general financial advice and life advice that you've been giving them through you and your guests all these years? Well, when I went out on my own, I started a firm, and it's called For Your Benefit. That radio show was that, too. And that's what it did. So I would go out and talk, and then after a while, I was talking to the people at government agencies, can you do this with other people? And I go, yeah, we got somebody that can do benefits. we got somebody to tax. Somebody can do this or that. Everybody's got their own niche. And you get a lot of feedback, too, don't you? I mean, the listeners, they write to us about you, so yeah. that you must get a lot of ideas from the listeners as to what concerns them. That's it. So you, know, you get the feedback from that. You get the feedback from clients and the like, and it just grew. And some of your regular guests have become well-known in the market in their own right. Oh, yeah. Well-known in the market? Tammy Flanagan. Tammy Flanagan, when I first met her, she she just left the um, government. And um, it was just started in ITP, the retirement firm. And I uh, said, Tammy, uh, we're going to go down to da-da-da-da. And she, like me, the first time, studied and studied and studied and studies. Well, Tammy didn't need to study. So I said to her, I said, as we go along, as I see that you've got a firm grist, I'm going to be walking backwards. She goes, why? I said, because it's your show, not mine. Yeah, so you did to her what your boss had done to you, knowing exactly. she could handle it. That was it. What happens to the National Institute of Transition Planning? We've got a fair number of people, admin, probably got 10 admin people. Sure. And then we have um, the speakers. And why are the speakers there? To get clients. But they can't sell. We have a rule. You can talk, but if you try to sell, you'll be talking to yourself. Yeah, that's the best way to sell is to not sell in some exactly. cases like that. Create, sure. create the need. Yeah. And earlier you mentioned you weren't at the top of your class. What was the class? Where'd you go to school? Where'd you grow up? Where do you come well, from? Well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a born and raised Wheaton kid, so people around here would know where Wheaton was. And not and, Wheaton, Illinois, by the way. Oh, no, not Wheaton, Illinois. No, Wheaton, you know, Wheaton was, you know, was a nice place to grow up. Maybe not to stay, but a nice uh, place to grow up. And so I left Wheaton as quickly as I could. I, I got married and... Uh, I went to work for this outfit called General Business Services. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> That's my work history. <laughs> All right. Uh, other than NITP. Right. And we won't reveal your age on the air, but you're still a vigorous guy for the age that you are. And well, what are you going to do next? You know what? My, my father was like this and my mother. We paid no attention to age. Uh, my mother, how old are you? I don't know. And she probably didn't know. And uh, my dad, you know, he, he would know. And they were just, they were smooth. And um, I didn't hear a lot of arguments, you know, maybe a couple of raised voice uh, discussions, but nothing nasty, you know, throwing books around. And, sure. Uh, uh, my dad would take us up to Wheaton High School to play football, not for the team, but, you know, we could play as little kids and he would do this and that. So, you know, I grew, I grew up normal. And then uh, I graduated uh, from school, and I went to work for this place called General Business Services, and that's it. Ten years there, and then I said, I can do this. And I told my boss, I said, I think I can do this. He says, well, then why don't you? Get out. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this coming Monday morning, of course, there will be no For Your Benefit show. Yeah. What will you do when you get up on Monday morning now? I'll read the paper. I'll figure out, uh, you know, if somebody had emailed me with a question, uh, and then I'd go to work. And, you know, maybe there wasn't a lot to do, but it was better than sitting at home. But what are you going to do now on Monday mornings, every morning? That's a good question. (laughs) It's It's an unknown, but it'll have something to do with something other than accounting. 
Sure. I, I like taxes, but I never liked accounting. But you don't make Lego ships or you don't pin butterflies on boards or paint pictures nah, of vases you know, of flowers? No, you know, no, no. I, I, whatever you know suits me for the day. Somebody will call up and say, hey, you want to go out and have lunch? Okay. Or somebody else will say, you want to go out and shoot hoops? And I go, okay. So, you know, it's that kind of stuff. Bob Lines has been the host of For Your Benefit, Monday mornings here on Federal News Network for 24 years. Great having you in and good luck. Thank you. It's great to be here. Bob Lyons was host of For Your Benefit here on Federal News Network for 24 years. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I... I I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize 
particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake and what is that and um, I think most important what did you take away from that what did you learn from that well I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders we have to learn to recognize our mistakes admit our mistakes and that they are opportunities to learn and so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. 
And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going, Um, because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, 
thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, and I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.